You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ruthie Fearberg, and this is Why We Theater. The podcast that digs into the onstage works we love to make the offstage change we need. After all, that is why we theater. Today, a little something different. On March 23rd, 2021, I published what I call my magnum opus, an article titled, What It Will Take for New York Theater to Come Back as the Industry and Community It Professes to Be. This is the audio version of that article, as written, plus an audio-only epilogue of where we are now in summer 2021. If you wanted to, this past weekend, you could finally dine inside a restaurant, attend an indoor catered affair, visit MoMA, catch a movie on the big screen, sit inside a coffee shop, or go to the gym. But you could not have enjoyed one of New York's most quintessential experiences, live theater. With President Biden's declaration that all American adults 18 and over will be eligible for the vaccine as of May 1st, we see the shore coming into view with indoor group activities and public gatherings in sight. As of March 15th, in-person catered events can resume at 50% capacity or 150 people. As of March 19th, indoor dining outside the city can resume at 75% and in the city at 35%. Television and film sets rebooted over the summer. The airline industry never even shut down. And yet, over a year into the COVID-19 pandemic, all of Broadway and nearly all of off-Broadway remains dark. The shutdown has devastated the industry. Aside from the party line, first to close, last to come back, professionals and the public have heard little about what's going on behind the scenes to actually bring theater back. Though daily news keeps Broadway and theater in the headlines, little has been said about what is actually going on. Artists have been waiting for more than a year to hear from leaders, but their waiting has been in vain. Until now. Countless articles cite the decimation of jobs and an entire $878 billion national economic system and a $110 billion one in New York City. Headlines tout record high unemployment rates and chronicle the overwhelming despair from the unmooring of a vibrant industry. While this is the brutal reality, the shutdown also offers the opportunity to rethink and rebuild. Damien Bazadonna, president and founder of Situation Interactive, a digital marketing firm for Broadway and live events, says, You're never, I've never seen a, a moment like this where people are willing to just take a beat and listen because they're not necessarily, they know there's nothing they could do right in front of them right this very second. So that to me is just a gigantic moment. But that moment is fleeting. As murmurs of a fall reopening for select production circulate, there remains much to accomplish. Foundations that can only be laid during this closure to ensure the safe and strong return of New York theater to better than it was before. This is the story of what has been done and what should be done before the lights turn back on. Part one, in the dark. When will Broadway come back? As someone who worked on the inside of Broadway for the last half decade, this is a question I get all the time. But the more important question is how? Like the theaters themselves, arts professionals remain in the dark. 
Clint Ramos, Tony Award-winning costume designer and Tony-nominated scenic designer, says... I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I am I'm. know what's going on in the industry. I don't know what the Broadway League's plan is. I don't know, you know, um, I don't know what the Lord plan is, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, because we're talking about Broadway. I don't know what the off-Broadway League plan is. A producer and general manager who has worked on Broadway and asked to speak anonymously for fear of jeopardizing future hiring by those players says a very small, tight lipped group of maybe 50 to 100 of the most powerful and influential and governing industry players have a sense of what's being contemplated. But even after a year, a year, none of that is making its way to the thousands and tens of thousands in the Broadway citizenry. Amid overwhelming frustration, the loudest and most prevalent gripe is the lack of transparency. If you want to create a situation where hyperbole and and misinformation starts, you know, tell thousands of actors that are out of work that they're out of work and the union's looking into it and then don't do anything. And And don't, or if you are doing some, don't tell them. Says Broadway actor and writer Eric Ulloa. So what is going on? The Broadway League, the trade association made up of members who are theater owners and other unionized industry professionals, established multiple committees from the start. Back in April 2020, Broadway League president Charlotte St. Martin informed deadline of 15 task forces. Quote, we have touring task forces. We've got government relations groups. We have nine marketing task forces, including the research one and the advertising one and the creative one and the digital one and the developing partnerships one, end quote. The description is broad, but also incomplete. It doesn't add up to 15. Still, this marked a crucial moment in which a leader shared information four weeks into an unprecedented shutdown. Since then, St. Martin and her colleagues have not supplied further details on individual subjects, responsibilities, or actual tasks for these task forces. To date, None of these committees has published any progress report. In fact, there's been debate about how many committees even exist. Depending on whom you ask, and this reporter asked two dozen people on and off the record, the guesstimates range from 17 to 47. According to a Broadway League spokesperson, there are now 42. 20 labor task forces, nine marketing task forces, five theater owner protocol task forces, four producer presenter task forces, three governmental relations task forces, and one leadership council task force. Sources familiar with the situation say the Broadway League committees are in the midst of planning a staggered reopening, deciding which shows will go first and which shows will continue to wait. Questions about auditions to fill now empty roles and puzzle piecing rehearsal schedules are topics of discussion. There are marketing efforts to hash out how to get audiences back. Terry Byrne, general manager of Off-Broadway's West Side Theater and former president of the Off-Broadway League from 2018 to 2020, says the Off-Broadway League and its members spend their days reading research from the CDC and considering their own staggered calendar. There's a pool of of people who regularly work Off-Broadway, and if everyone is demanding their attention at the same time, Undoubtedly, there's a lot theater owners and producers can't do without a reopening date. And yet, there is still much they can. The league spokesperson assures that these task forces, quote, have been working with city and state officials as well as leaders in science, technology, and medicine to formulate the best plan to restart the industry, end quote. And, quote, every path to safely reopening is being fully explored, end quote. Still, Details are scant. As the producer and general manager acknowledges, quote, the Broadway League used to be called the League of American Theaters and Producers, so technically they are accountable only to their membership of producers, theater owners, and managers, and not necessarily to the greater Broadway workforce. But by definition, it's the producers and the theater owners who largely define if, when, and how Broadway will return. So in addition to being the public face and the government-facing representative of our industry, the entire industry has no choice but to look to the League for information, for guidance, for signs of progress, for reasons to be hopeful or not, and for updates in general. 
The league did play an instrumental role in the historic passage of the Save Our Stages Act, a feat not to be minimized. And the establishment of 42 committees should be heartening. But without information flowing from them, it can feel like they don't exist. As our producer and general manager friend said, quote, I think it's fair to say that the feeling amongst much of the rank and file of the industry is that there has been a distinct failure of communication at a time when communication is so desperately needed. Similarly, entertainment unions have not sufficiently communicated with their membership about their progress, as indicated in part by the circulating petition to Equity's leaders demanding a town hall. Equity agreed, and it will take place April 8th. In a statement delivered prior to the petition's spread, Equity tells this reporter, quote, Our staff is closely monitoring the latest science on a daily basis and doing everything in our power to ensure employers have the appropriate science-based safety protocols in place when work increases, end quote. Still, many actors and stage managers feel frustrated by these vagaries. Eric Uyoa asks, Why is there not a weekly, a, 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 a bi-weekly, you know, update that, that comes in, you know, the mail, the actual physical hard mail. People can actually hold it, look at it, read it, everything. Yeah. And it, it tells you, here's what's going on. The union did publish elaborate 2020 safety guidelines in November. None of the actors I spoke to were aware of it. Despite recent revelations about New York's Governor Cuomo, in the early days of the pandemic, his press briefings were dubbed must-see TV and drew more than 4.7 million viewers through Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, and a live stream feed on the state's website. Consistent, detailed information has been the great calmer in the chaos of the pandemic. Information about COVID-19, viral transmission, vaccines, and safety protocols changes frequently, and there seems to be concern among leaders that they could publish information that will change. So what's the point in sharing? To which actor and Broadway for Racial Justice founder Brandon Michael Nace replies, Well, why don't you let us decide if it's pointless or not? In a recent Forbes piece, St. Martin said, quote, We never negotiate in public, end quote as negotiations about safety protocols, economics, and more are about to begin. Negotiating in public and keeping employees informed are not the same. As the aforementioned producer and general manager says, the most fair expectation would be to periodically share with the public what you know, what you don't know, and what you're doing in the meantime. If they can't draw conclusions or make definitive statements because there are still too many unknowns, then at the very least, what are they studying and what are some of the nuances they are trying to tackle? Leaving everyone guessing and forcing everyone to rely on conjecture and rumor and hearsay is not productive either, end quote. As much as we still don't know, there is a lot we do a year in. We know the novel coronavirus spreads through aerosols and droplets. We know the key to indoor gatherings involves ventilation and filtration, the maximum amount of outdoor air brought inside and removing viral particles from said air. HVAC systems, MERV filters, and HEPA filtration are the new words of the day. As the producer and general manager says, these are, quote, issues that are indeed solvable irrespective of how and when Broadway comes back. I'm struggling to understand why the New York theater owners haven't been more vocal and out in front on this here as well, end quote. Part two, the chicken or the government? It's sad for me to hear that, that this, you know, that the the network of of freelance theater artists and craftspeople are feeling um, uninformed. And and it's a direct, it's a domino effect. It's a direct result of how do we communicate with people when we don't yet know ourselves what yeah. will be required. Says Terry Byrne. Neither the governor's office nor the mayor's office has published guidelines, HVAC or otherwise, for operating any indoor venues at greater than 50%, let alone full capacity. Yet, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, or ASHRAE, released guidelines for ventilation and filtration in October 2020, as well as systems evaluation guidelines. Ventilation systems need updates because they were intended for thermal comfort, warm in the winter, cool in the summer, and odor reduction, says Brian Pavilonis, a certified industrial hygienist and tenure-track professor at CUNY School of Public Health. He says, The regulations for the ventilation systems are not at all about controlling the spread of infectious diseases. Now they have to be. 
Though Pavilonis concedes that experts do not yet know the exact amount of air changes per hour necessary inside a building to render it fully COVID safe, they know more is always better. The most lo-fi option, keep street-facing doors open for many theaters like Broadway's Booth, Majestic, Schubert, American Airlines, Hirschfeld, and more. News about opening off-Broadway's The Shed highlighted the building's accordion walls and direct outdoor access. Yes, you'd have to manage non-ticketed onlookers and street noise, but as Pavilonis says, We're in a pandemic and you can get greater outdoor airflow with all your doors open. You know, things like that just might have to be tolerated for a while. Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health indicates that for classrooms, the target rate is five to six air changes per hour, and the ideal is six air changes per hour, meaning all of the air in the room changes over six times per hour or every 10 minutes. Though children produce fewer infectious particles than adults, transmission risk increases over time. Therefore, theaters can learn from school reopening recommendations. On top of changing the air as much as possible, air must be cleaned. Filters abide by a MERV rating that quantifies, quote, the capture efficiency of small particles. Right now, most commercial buildings operate at a level eight. ASHRAE now recommends a minimum of 13 with an ideal of 16, known as HEPA filtration. For duct systems that can't accommodate HEPA, UV light in ducts can clean particles, or portable HEPA filtration can be placed around a venue. It's worth noting that these ventilation and filtration levels are the same as recommended in Equity's 2020 safety guidelines, but they have not been formally adopted industry-wide or publicly adopted by New York theater operators. Suddenly, it makes sense why we keep seeing photos of nearly full airplanes without subsequent reports of flights as super spreader events. Pavilonis explains of planes. You have a lot of airflow. It's not outdoor air. Uh, a certain percentage is recycled, but it's passed through HEPA filters. You do get a lot. I mean, because you know those vents over your head. Um, that's a lot of airflow. Burns says the West Side operations manager is working with their new HVAC company to determine possibilities for that off-Broadway venue. Sort of in the process right now of getting quotes and trying to figure out what we can do. Resources are always an issue. It's the nature of the business. But we're, we're looking at it before we reopen. We're going to undertake a cleaning and sanitizing of all the units. And, you know, the possibility of installing... Uh, bipolar ionization devices. The likelihood is that other theater operators are examining these systems in their buildings. That said, the Schubert Organization, Drew Jamison, and Manhattan Theater Club declined to comment on facilities matters. Roundabout Theater Company declined to comment on specifics regarding facilities, though said updates were in the works. The Niederlander Organization did not respond to requests for comment. Records at the Department of Buildings do not reflect any permits issued or in process, which would cover major HVAC upgrades or changes, but might not reflect smaller items like filter changes. Sharing this information would go a long way to A, inform arts workers about the conditions they need to ask about before they return to work, and B, reassure theater artists and theater goers of their safety if houses upgrade their systems. Perhaps theaters could post their ACH and filter level the way restaurants post their health grade. Professionals and audiences would have reason to feel assured by this news, if it is indeed happening, even though New York theaters have not been testing grounds. You see, there is evidence that up-to-date ventilation and filtration makes a significant difference inside theatrical venues specifically. In South Korea, the theater industry never shut down. As many in the industry know, the Korean production of The Phantom of the Opera opened in Seoul on March 14, 2020, and Cats later opened a Korean production on September 9, 2020. Both are the subjects of the upcoming documentary The Show Must Go On by theater director and now documentary maker Sammy Cannold. As she notes, the commercial Korean theater industry, specifically musicals, is only about 20 years old, which means the venues that host them were built in the last 20 years, many in the last decade. Their HVAC systems are fully updated, with strict protocols in place, and there has been zero 
audience-to-audience transmission in theaters to date and zero transmission backstage for both Phantom, which played to full capacity, and Cats, which has reached capacities as high as 70%. The reason I've been a broken record about this zero audience-to-audience transmission figure is that I think that, to me, that's what makes me feel comfortable coming back to the theater, Hmm. is there is empirical proof that theaters are uniquely controllable environments, and not just in South Korea. In 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 studies that are coming out of Germany about you know um, uh, concert venues um, in Australia, you know, like there 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 is a lot of empirical proof that if we follow the protocol, if we do all the right things, going to the theater is safer than you know sitting on the subway. Conveying that information to people is going to be what's key, and it it to me it has to start with theater workers. Because if we don't believe it's safe, how are we going to convince our audience that it's safe? That's Sammy Kennelled. Plus, the industry has an opportunity to impress upon government leaders that it is in fact safe to return at more than 33% capacity, which is permitted for Broadway and beyond as of April 2nd, but which the Broadway League has repeatedly conveyed is not financially viable. John Jay College devised and presented its own reopening plan. Why can't theater? We are in the unique position to set standards rather than wait for guidelines to follow. What's more, Gregory Kursop knows where to find funding for these upgrades. The former assistant political director for the New York City Chamber of Commerce now works on the Broadway Community Project and remains tied to the chamber as a consultant and in his role as PAC co-chair. He is also the son of two out-of-work Broadway stage managers and moderates a room on Clubhouse about bringing Broadway back from the vantage point of New York power and politics. The Chamber of Commerce is a nonprofit consisting of member businesses that provides resources and advocacy on behalf of its members. So when it comes to facilities, Kursop says... I would be remiss if I didn't think that every chamber would be willing to take up this, you know, this is a critical issue in advocating for additional funding. We would be making these calls and talking with the governor to get this done. Part three, a cocktail of solutions. Since the beginning, hope has been riding on the vaccine. But even the most effective inoculations don't eradicate the risk of all illness, not to mention uncertainties regarding variants, spikes, and future pandemics experts say are on the way. Now is the time to prepare. While ventilation and filtration are one, albeit crucial, piece of the puzzle, as Canold says, The only way to proceed safely is a cocktail of solutions. There's mm. no silver bullet. We can't get people just to wear masks at Trader Joe's. Like, can mm. we get people to wear their masks and do what is asked of them? That's actor Amber Iman. Again, Korea offers hope. Company members check their temperatures multiple times a day, submit daily track and trace forms, and wear masks everywhere except for their hotel rooms and once they are in makeup. They are prohibited from visiting certain high-risk areas of the city and eat in green rooms equipped with plexiglass-bordered stations, all of which they contractually agreed to. Jess Burns, company manager of Kat's South Korean production, certifies that compliance has never been an issue. Company members understand that their employment is on the line, and patrons understand the art form itself is on the line. Taking a page out of Korea's handbook, mask wearing and other safety protocols can be contractually obligated for employees. Mask wearing can also be mandated for audience entry. Right now, Equity's 2020 safety guidelines prohibits the use of mass transit as well as intimate staging and stage combat for its members. What's compelling about Korea is that although the cast lives in a hotel and travels to work by tour bus, they're not really in a bubble. Their crew of 60 consists solely of locals who live throughout the city and use mass transit. What's more, Phantom never eliminated kisses, and as Byrne says of cats... You know, like, (laughs) God's jellical ball when they're sweaty as old hell and they're all just, like, on top of each other. And still, zero transmissions. Audiences wear masks, get temperature checks, complete forms to verify they have not left the country in 14 days, and follow a one-way traffic system to and from their seats. The continued health of the Cats company and their audiences to this day, even without a vaccine, bodes well for a city like New York. As Burns says, 
it just doesn't need to be as difficult as I feel like some governments are kind of assuming it is just because it's a group of people in a room. It doesn't, it's like, it's not the same. It's like, it's a completely controllable environment. Skeptics argue that using Korea or Australia, where COVID case rates are exponentially lower than the U.S., isn't a fair comparison. That may be true on the whole, but there are useful similarities. As Sammy Cannold says, In Korea, there have been mass outbreaks traced to nightclubs, churches, preschools, you name it. There have not been mass outbreaks traced to audiences and theaters. That, to me, says, okay, New York City... Uh, when New York City opens up its restaurants at full capacity, to me, that is more dangerous than sitting in a theater. You can't just do exactly what Korea did and expect that everything's going to be fine because the case numbers are different. But I think that the lessons to be learned from Korea and other countries now like it can be adapted to our specific circumstances. One adaptation in particular can reduce a step and therefore costs to producers. Some Korean theaters have antiviral misters in doorways to spray down patrons as they enter. A crew regularly deep cleans by misting seats or fogging the front of house area. Pavilona cites this as unnecessary and potentially harmful. We don't know the long term health effects of people being exposed to that. It's a respiratory virus produced by people that are infected. So I don't know what a mister is going to do. It's not being transmitted on people's clothes. In terms of aerosols or droplets left behind? After about three hours, three to four hours, you know, there's no longer a risk of, uh, you know, those particles still being viable. You have a nice 24-hour window to your next show. Misting and fogging house seats is more performative than effective. Bathrooms and door handles may be the only spots in need of misting because of the fast turnaround time between uses by different patrons. In that case, the Pittsburgh-based company Aris could be a useful solution. The company manufactures drone and handheld misters, the latter of which could prove useful for bathrooms and door handles. Per Cursop, Aris has pledged to provide these tools at cost to theater operators in addition to a 10% donation to any Broadway organization. As Amber Iman says, I think at this point, we just want to go back to work. We know that there will never be like us return to before. But if we could just start, if that's the thing. Is like, can we just even start to try? As Burns sees it, we can do more than try. It is absolutely doable to put a show on in the middle of a pandemic. Like it's, the Koreans have proven that. It's completely doable. Part four, in the wings. When it comes to safety backstage, there's a lot more to talk about than sanitation and air quality. For years, performers put their physical well-being at risk. While there have been extreme cases of physical injury, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark and The Little Mermaid come to mind, There are also everyday strains that chip away at the physical well-being of performers and crew. What's what's that Elaine Switch quote? It's not the work, it's the stairs. Says Erica Yoa. Anyone who's visited backstage at a Broadway house notices the dressing rooms are up, sometimes 10 flights up. Rubber and duct tape encase the steps to prevent slips and provide padding to go easier on the joints. There are low-hanging ceilings wrapped in foam in case you miss the clearing distance. Those theaters backstage are like have huge like mold and stuff. Wouldn't this be the proper time, you know, to take care of that? So we're not just, you know, accepting that, you know, actors will get sick. While most Broadway theaters are wheelchair accessible for patrons, though still not all, most backstages are not. The same is true for many off-Broadway houses. When Tony Award winner Ali Stroker made her Broadway debut in Deaf West Spring Awakening, the Brooks Atkinson Theater addressed the issue. But must theater owners wait for Stroker or another actor in a wheelchair to star in a show for its host venue to become accessible? These are big renovations that theaters don't have the time to consider when mounting eight shows a week, nor do they have the time to shut down a venue for the months it takes to complete such overhauls. And yet, we are now in that shutdown. 
According to American Theater Magazine, regional theaters in Chicago, Birmingham, Alabama, Lawrenceville, Georgia, San Diego, and more have pushed ahead with facility expansion and improvement. On Broadway, the Department of Buildings shows no permits in process or issued. We have the time now, and we can get the money. Gregory Kursop again. We can take it up as a mantle 100%, but I think there's also necessity for uh, influential sects of the industry, like the unions or like others, to also take it up as a mantle. I mean, realistically, like for the example of, um, you know, the, the padding on the stairs, that's totally something that the union should be advocating for. Uh, and whether it's looking for government funding and partnering with the chamber to then advocate for this at a federal or local or state, whatever level, uh, or whether it's just telling, you know, saying, look, theater owner, this isn't cutting it anymore. We need an upgrade. Um, there's different kind of routes. When you talk about upgrades on Broadway and off, there's also one area where every single person wants to see change. The bathrooms. We kind of just like white knuckle through it. I think it's a culture of scarcity. That's Clint Ramos, who also wants to think expansively in new areas. Are we also prepared to have nursing rooms for mothers? Is every backstage actually equipped with that? Do we have a room that's not the lobby or a space, even a designated space for affinity spaces? Some of this comes down to real estate. Unlike theaters around the country, in New York City, you can't invent space where there is none. Some of it has to do with landmark status, a title many Broadway theaters hold, and limits to changing the edifices. But theater is in the business of imagination. If we dare to ask these questions, the most innovative artists in the world might create solutions that defy common logic. Part five, safety in every sense of the word. Always saying safety first. That is the motto. That means so many things. That's just not physical safety. That's like societal safety. That's, that's everything. Says Ramos. While the entire globe has experienced the collective stressor that is the pandemic, it's likely that arts workers disproportionately experienced traumatic stressors that threaten their survival. With the loss of work, artists like Iman have been unable to pay rent favoring food and medical expenses. I'm just hoping and praying I don't get an eviction notice. The trauma also goes beyond survival to self-identity. This thing has, like, broken people's spirit. So many actors, our purpose is tied to our employment. And when we have not worked for a year, you're like, how, what? How do I exist? After so long away from work, from communal spaces, from the physical toll of rehearsing and performing, how is the industry preparing to reacclimate its workforce? So you're telling me like in six months, I'm gonna be in a physical room with 30 plus people and no one's gonna be traumatized and no one's gonna be like, I need a break or I can I wear my mask or I just don't feel safe or somebody's gonna quit because it's too much too quickly. Mm. Like I can't even start to think about the amount of therapy we need, the amount of trauma counseling that we need. <laughs> like, yeah. A safety committee established by SDC, the Union for Stage Directors and Choreographers, brainstormed ways in which to lead rooms delicately and sensitively. But directors can only do so much. Yet, this is solvable. Productions, particularly on Broadway, hire physical therapists for dance-heavy musicals and physically demanding plays. Acclaimed vocal coach Liz Kaplan serves as vocal supervisor to particularly taxing shows. Why not do the same for mental health and hire a psychotherapist or social worker for every production? Actor and Broadway for Racial Justice founder Brandon Michael Nace. Especially with some of the subject matter from shows, it's like, that should be a resource that's provided. Post-pandemic, ensemblists, stage managers, designers, everyone should have the option of this resource regardless of show subject matter. It comes down to a newfound culture of health. As Burns points out in the pre-pandemic world. Once you're about to die, you have to turn up to work. If it cannot be that. Tony winning sound designer Jessica Paz hopes that this extends to creative staff upon return. While actors have understudies, standbys, and swings, and productions have multiple stage managers, designers have no such backup. You know, I have an associate, but if I'm sick and I don't come in, then all of the responsibility falls only on my associate's shoulders. Like, you don't have an associate and an assistant. 
I can feel producer antenna perk up at the added expenses, but producers must invest in their people to equip them to deliver their best work. And it's to their advantage. Increased mental wellness could mean actors call out less frequently, stay with the run of a show for longer, or simply bolster allegiance to the entity that takes care of them. Clearly, it is a commercial venue. Nobody's arguing that, right? And we live in a capitalist system. Mm -hmm. But within that, how are we protecting the bodies that we're employing? Which brings us to another type of safety that should never have been ignored. Artists of color... Black artists, Indigenous artists, Asian artists, Latinx artists, and beyond carry real fear about returning to work. We don't feel supported. Mm-hmm. We don't feel affirmed. We don't feel seen or heard in so many ways. Like, we just don't feel safe. Says Iman, who is also a founder of Broadway Advocacy Coalition. She fears returning to rooms with white producers, directors, and choreographers who have been called to task during this time. She fears what will happen when racist behavior targets her and her peers. So Iman has shifted her energy to foster community and create safety in numbers when she returns. But artists should not be left to fend for themselves. As Ramos says. When we talk about the show must go on, we have to disrupt that. The show must not go on if we are being harmed. Right. If we if if our welfare, both physically and emotionally are, and, and and psychologically are, on, um, are, are at risk, I would really love to see both the Broadway League and the theater owners to actually have a stance on that. A plan to return is incomplete unless it includes direct action for the plight of marginalized people. Industry leaders have the opportunity, while still shut down, to conceive, communicate and enact a plan. As Nace says, he wants to see protocols when I experience racism, not if, when. To date, Equity and its companion unions have not outlined a reliable process for members to report racist incidents nor a regulated process to discipline offenders. Equity does have a hotline that members can call to file a complaint, but that is insufficient. Iman confides this one example. A friend of mine was like, And when I called Equity, they were like, why are you calling us? You should call your agent. In the span of four months, Broadway for Racial Justice established its own hotline to report racial trauma within theatrical workplaces. Staffed by trained experts, Broadway for Racial Justice's hotline provides an outline for BIPOC callers to reach BIPOC advocates. Protocols establish consistent dialogue when answering calls and clear guidelines for resolutions to misconduct. NACE would love to formally establish a relationship with Equity where the union not only directs callers to the BFRJ hotline, but helps fund it. And when it comes to the industry at large... I want to see something that says, like, this is the way things were operating and these are the changes we've made to to move in a direction where we can operate to form a community Mm. because we're not a community. The industry, so often referred to as a community, needs deep and focused repair. How are we looking at the ecosystem backstage and looking at representation there? We need a plan. What is the plan, folks? What is the plan? Though IATSE, which in theater represents behind-the-scenes technicians and artisans, as well as front-of-house personnel, published a statement in response to We See You White American Theater's demands, members have not heard an action plan. And Ramos yearns for mandatory anti-racism and anti-bias training backstage. He wants Local One, the local New York branch of IATSE for stagehands and crew, to make hiring practices transparent. NACE would like to see communal space agreements and collaboration in creating those agreements become industry standard. These social contracts set the rules of the space from rehearsal room to theater. Think of the posters that tout expectations and values on the walls of your grade school classroom. Rehearsing a show is an educational space. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same thing. And yet, this works only to a certain degree unless the intention behind it is genuine. None of the changes are made because people's hearts and minds have been changed. They are only being changed because people's bank accounts have been challenged. Naturally, you just don't feel good about it. Intention is the seed of art. Artists more than any other population, the people whose job it is to feel, can feel when actions don't match intention. But 
perhaps as a start, these actions can at least indicate an openness towards inward reflection and a signal of listening. Can we get to a point where we're all feeling safe, where we're all feeling like we're being heard, and we can get back to creating art? While neither the Broadway League nor Off-Broadway League is a governing body, remember, both are trade associations made up of members and member organizations, both have the power to create standardized practices and advocate for their incorporation in the collective bargaining agreements. As Ramos says, The Broadway League is the negotiating body with all of these unions. If we really believe that this is important, right, surely this can be part of those negotiations. The future of New York theater depends on this. If leaders do not provide safety to its employees in every sense of the word, artists simply will not return to work. All of this comes from not any sort of like, you know, anything that, you know, any desire to burn the house down. You know, when you love something or somebody so much, you want them to be the best that they could possibly be. So I ask the people in power, what is preventing us from being our best selves? Part six, our best selves. What do we want theater to look like, specifically Broadway and off-Broadway? From Situation President Damien Bazadonna's view. This is a moment to reset our relationship, mm-hmm. rekindling our relationship with the local community, which I think we've destroyed. For better and worse, Broadway has become a tourist's market. From 1999 to 2019, attendance by domestic tourists doubled. And in the most recent season, locals made up only 35% of Broadway audiences. If you look inside of a theater of who actually attends the theater, it's not necessarily representative of the communities in which we're literally placed. In a pandemic world, the great tourist appeal has flipped from strength to vulnerability. Broadway, in particular, must relocalize. What are the types of relationships and partnerships and things we need to get in to do it in a sustainable way? And I'm not just talking like Broadway Week. In general, more holistically, how are we integrated to schools? How are we integrated into the local communities? How are we getting out to the boroughs? TDF hosts the Wendy Wasserstein Project, which since 1998 has paired public high schoolers with theater mentors to see six shows a year. The nonprofit also forged Create New York, a multi-year partnership program with community centers in the five boroughs to bring residents to the theater and art back to their neighborhoods. The Broadway League created Broadway Bridges to get every New York City public school sophomore to a Broadway show. But Bazadana wants more. What I would want to do is carve out a five or ten year deal right now with the public school system. My moonshot would say every kid we're going to take about two to three, two and a half million seats, uh, which by the way is what goes dead every, which was going dead every year, even in our heyday. Carve those seats out and say, do a deal with the New York City Board of Ed, where with public ed, with the Board of Ed to where all students see uh, at least one, maybe two shows a year, um, connecting them with the city. Uh, that is 100% doable. According to Bazadonna, this creates three long-term wins. One, it exposes youngsters to the acquired taste that is theater over time. Two, it introduces new career possibilities to the next generation, and public schools are key to a diverse future workforce. And three... It creates amazing, better human beings, which makes our community stronger and better. A stronger relationship to the local community can also establish future financial stability and expansion. The lack of financial support from the government during this year-long shutdown did not have to be a foregone conclusion, but it demonstrates a lack of emotional connection to the arts. To ensure our future, Bazadana notes, We need to be more more important in people's lives, and the way we're more important in people's lives is have more touch points with them. Part 7. New Age, New Stage Lucky for theater, the pandemic illuminated the problem and the solution. Forced into the virtual realm, the industry has found myriad ways to create these additional touch points. And I'm not just talking about Zoom readings. 
podcasts like this one, live YouTube town halls, pre-recorded artist Q&As, and clubhouse concerts are all digital extensions of live performance that can and should continue when theater returns in order to cultivate emotional investment and boost revenue. You go see one show, you leave it. The odds of you going back second are not high. But the odds of me selling you three, four, five extended virtual events at a fraction of the cost that are slightly different and iterative and just interesting are very high. The creative foundation is there. The practicality and technology is not. Every virtual event and add-on needs to be ticketed on the same platform and in the same way as the ticket to the live event. Technology must streamline the experience and ease friction to the point of purchase. Anyone who's entered a Broadway digital ticket lottery out there knows the confusion of signing up through multiple social channels or Google or Social Toaster after you first create a new account and navigating five different platforms for one lotto entry you hope went through. Why not build a dropdown on Telecharge and Ticketmaster with the options orchestra, mezzanine, balcony, lottery, post-show talkback? There's also one big advent theater should be readying for streaming. In 2015, Broadway HD launched the first streaming platform for theater in the United States. That year, the service became the first ever to live stream an off-Broadway show, Daddy Long Legs, and the first ever in 2016 to live stream a Broadway show, Roundabout Theater Company's revival of She Loves Me. Though Broadway has said over and over it will not open at the currently authorized 33% capacity due to finances, One-third in-person capacity does not have to be the total capacity, nor does the 75% marker Charlotte St. Martin floated in a recent NBC interview. Digital audiences can help make up the difference of socially distanced capacity and later offer additional income at full capacity. In fact, socially distanced seating suits the setup for a stream or capture. When filming a live stream or capture, cameras and equipment require seat kills anyway. Bonnie Cumley, co-founder of Broadway HD with her husband, Stuart Lane, says. I would love to see um, that uh, live streaming be part of the business going forward. And we've been saying that, Stu and I, since we did it with She Loves Me five years ago, that it's additive to the business going forward. In addition to making up for lost revenue, streaming, whether live or captured, addresses the persistent accessibility problem in theater, especially Broadway. When Broadway shut down March 12th, the average single ticket price to a show was $104.58. Take it from this former habitual rusher, when you lower the ticket price, people get in line. Say you sell live stream tickets for $30. Not only does this democratize accessibility, it also lowers the barrier to entry for those who can afford full price tickets, but don't want to take that level of financial risk on an unknown entity. Though I regularly hear people balk at the price of a Broadway ticket, I have never heard anyone think twice about spending $100 on a ticket to the top tier of Madison Square Garden to see Ariana Grande or Billy Joel. Why? Because they know what they're getting. In the music industry, albums don't make the money, tours do. But albums are the best marketing for those tours. As Stuart Lane says, If I could stream the opening night of a Broadway show, I can't think of a faster, better way to have the entire nation, the entire globe, be aware of your show on Broadway by streaming it live on, on a website like Broadway HD. I mean, that's the biggest, biggest commercial you could get. Comely ads. When we do any sort of surveys, any sort of exit polls for the, you know, in cinemas that we did, you know, these people are saying, I will absolutely go buy a ticket after this. You know, up till now, most shows have to wait for the idea to seep through to the rest of the nation. I mean, usually when you do get to the Tony Awards, most of the people who are watching haven't seen these Broadway shows yet. Uh, this way it would resonate a lot more for them. It's like watching a movie. You see the movies before the Academy Awards, not necessarily after. This could be a boon for off-Broadway as well, as regional houses have seen. Uyoa, whose musical Passing Through debuted March 15th on Goodspeed's new streaming service, Goodspeed On Demand, notes... Most people would be ignorant to get rid of that and not realize that they have a huge opportunity for, you know, larger audiences mm-hmm. that builds quite a base. The lower ticket price undoubtedly creates accessibility locally and abroad, though the added benefit of expanding geographical reach is a compelling one. As Cumley says, 
if you look at the universe of who is streaming, it's everyone. Mm -hmm. There's more people with cell phones streaming their entertainment than there are people with indoor plumbing around the world. Even when the world opens up, as designer Paz says, It would open up the possibility for people who could not otherwise afford to fly to New York and pay for tickets to see the show. All of the expenses that come along with that, hotel, eating out, a lot of people in this country can't afford to do that. It also keeps the proverbial doors open for theater lovers unable to get to a theater or sit in an auditorium due to physical differences. The ability to live stream from a theater is not new. The widespread practice? Completely. Some say the unions will never agree, but they already have. Cumley and Lane got all 17 unions, including the additional for film, on board in the past and now uses those agreements as templates. Everybody that, you know, created the show is compensated yes. in the way that that their unions that all, everybody has agreed to in advance. Ramos says. I actually think it's a no-brainer, you know. If the, if the contract, again, if the contracts are negotiated right, then everyone wins. Pass adds. Why would anybody be against making more money? Now is the crucial time to set up the infrastructure for such a venture. For long-running shows that could stream regularly, say once a month, or for subscription houses that regularly rotate the shows on their stages, it could be worthwhile to bring in cameras and create a static setup. Regional theaters, like Center Theater Group in Los Angeles, have bought equipment to outfit their stages with cameras and at a TV studio. Venues at New World Stages and 767, both run by Schubert Organization, have been outfitted for virtual productions. And Byrne says her West Side Theater is absolutely open to the possibility. Live streaming in particular offers a few added benefits. The music rights are covered for a capture that's an extra cost, and there's no post-production editing. A capture that audiences can stream on demand offers different benefits. Presenters wield more control over the final product, and time zones won't affect viewership. As Comley says, There's not a one-size-fits-all. But incorporating a budget for streaming or a digital capture into the capitalization for a show is a practice Comley and Lane want to see to fruition. That costs varies widely depending on the quality of the recording. You know, you can equate these digital captures in a sense to, you know, uh, movies. You know, you can shoot a movie with, you know, a, a, you know, a cell phone. Or you can go in and do, you know, a the works. $100, yeah. you know, movie. The point is to think of this before opening. If you're doing a musical, most producers bake into the, you know, the cost of that show is... A, a cast album. Everybody knows what it is. You know, so we want that kind of enthusiasm mm. around the capture. Streaming, live or not, presents the chance for major growth, which is desperately needed after more than a year of lost presence and revenue. As Bazadonna says, when you create more virtual stages, you create more space for for more content more writers, more, it becomes, it becomes less of a limited capacity business. And that's mm -hmm. what the whole problem to me is the problem with all this. We're in a limited capacity business. We can be in a growth business. Part eight, the bottom line. The world we knew is now gone forever, said David Kessler, the author of Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, when he was on Brene Brown's podcast in March 2020. He continued, we talk about 9-11. Do you remember what the airports were like before 9-11? We are going to talk about, do you remember what the world was like before the pandemic? The truth is we can't go back to before. That's good news for the future of theater. Theater is a craft of imagination, an outlet for challenging the status quo, an oasis for empathy. If we use this downtime right to build lines of communication, mandate an environment of transparency, update theatrical edifices, require physical, mental, and emotional safety in the workplace, deepen relationships with local communities, minimize financial and geographic barriers to entry for audiences, and lead with daring, the theater that returns from hibernation will look wildly different from what it was. 
it will live up to its own definition and be better for it. The epilogue, where are we now? As of July, 2021, Broadway is reopening slowly. The very first production to return was Springsteen on Broadway at the St. James Theater. Next up, Passover will open August 4th, then Town September 2nd, and on September 14th, The Lion King, Wicked, Hamilton, and Chicago all return, and the new play, Lackawanna Blues, will open at Manhattan Theater Club. As of now, each production will make their own individual decision on vaccine requirements and mask-wearing guidelines. Passover just released its COVID protocols for audiences. Audience members must be fully vaccinated. If audience members are unvaccinated because they are under the age of 16 or for religious reasons, they must present a negative COVID test, either a PCR test within 72 hours of attending the performance or an antigen test within six hours. Masks must be worn everywhere except for your assigned seats. Then masks are optional. Off-Broadway is slowly reopening as well, with productions at venues like the Park Avenue Armory, BAM, and of course, Shakespeare in the Park. Post-Equity Town Hall, many members have still expressed disappointment. The March on Broadway took place this past spring, protesting allegations against producer Scott Rudin. The rally also protested frustrations in having to pay equity dues without having much news out of the organization. In terms of Rudin, many of his shows are slated to return under new executive leadership. Oren Wolf will take over as lead producer of To Kill a Mockingbird. The National Theater and Neal Street Productions will be the lead producers aside Barry Diller and David Geffen as co-producers on the Lehman Trilogy. Also formerly under Rudin's leadership was the upcoming revival of The Music Man starring Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster, which now falls under the leadership of executive producer Kate Horton. And we will also see the return of The Book of Mormon under new leadership. But back to equity. Executive Director Mary McCall will step down as Executive Director in January 2022. Before then, she and the union are in negotiations for the off-Broadway actor contracts and still working on safety guidelines. According to a July 8th announcement, Actors' Equity has partnered with National Energy Management Institute to set ventilation guidelines for performance spaces. These guidelines will be based on assessments by technicians. Those technicians will base their assessments on guidelines from ASHRAE as well as state and local guidelines. The technicians that assess are expected to be hired by producers and theater owners. That said, neither New York State nor New York City has released official government guidelines for ventilation in performance spaces. Upgrades to HVAC systems are underway, as shown by permits issued from the Department of Buildings, but there are no formal guidelines for theater venues specifically. As of April 26, 2021, there were interim movie theater guidelines, which are the closest to Broadway theatrical venues. These guidelines require a minimum of MERV 13 filtration, as well as increasing the airflow as much as possible. These guidelines also recommend that ventilation systems older than 15 years be updated per CDC and ASHRAE guidelines. Interim movie theater guidelines also require mask wearing indoors, although we've already seen deviation on this front in the Broadway arena. When it comes to government, there is one significant update. Shuttered venue operators grants have begun distribution, and Broadway productions like Hamilton, West Side Story, Hangman, Waitress, To Kill a Mockingbird, Tina the Tina Turner Musical, Chicago, Jagged Little Pill, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, Moulin Rouge the Musical, Come From Away, and the Mean Girls Tour have all received funding. This also includes our friends at the West Side Theater and the production that they were hosting of Little Shop of Horrors. In addition to federal funding, Speaker of New York City Council Corey Johnson has also sponsored spending over $33 million in his West Side Council District. And there is more good news from President Biden's administration. The House Appropriations Committee in Congress approved Biden's full budgetary request of $201 million for the National Endowment of the Arts. 
This is a record-breaking figure, but we can't stop here. $201 million for the entire NEA is not yet enough. In terms of the theater venues themselves, there are no detailed reports on evaluations or major changes to backstage conditions. There's also no update on adding any bathrooms to any of the major theaters. That said, we are getting more accessible seating in the house of Jujamson's five theaters. They will be adding wheelchair accessible seating, wheelchair transfer seating, and they have eliminated barriers to accessibility in theater restrooms, concession counters, waiting areas, and box offices. This is the result of a lawsuit against Jujamson from the U.S. Attorney's Office. Similar suits have been brought against the Schubert Organization, the Nederlander Organization, and venues including Radio City Music Hall and Madison Square Garden. Results of those lawsuits have not yet been announced. In terms of safety, in every sense of the word, actors who are back to work report feeling a little off when they first get in the room, but good things are happening on stage and backstage. Broadway for Racial Justice continues to work, their allied program has nurtured new casting associates of color to help diversify this workforce. The Broadway Advocacy Coalition is the recipient of a special Tony Award. Speaking of the Tony Awards, the Tony Awards will take place on September 26th, broadcast on Paramount Plus and CBS. Just to clear up some confusion, the entire four-hour broadcast will be available on Paramount Plus beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The 7 to 9 p.m. slot will take place on Paramount Plus exclusively and present the bulk of the awards. Then, beginning at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will see the typical flash and splash of Broadway performances on CBS and on Paramount Plus as well as the three biggest awards of the night, Best Musical, Best Play, and Best Revival of a Play. Broadway Advocacy Coalition has also instituted a new program called Reimagining Equitable Productions, or REP. Developed by BAC's Britton Smith, Jalen Levingston, Leah Squillance, and Columbia University's Dr. Susan Sturm, the productions that will be participating in the REP program are Company on Broadway, Tina the Tina Turner Musical on Broadway, Aladdin on Broadway, The Lion King on Broadway and on tour, and the Frozen National Tour. Additionally, we're seeing some much needed diversity in the offerings of theater, with many plays by Black playwrights coming up in this season, including Lackawanna Blues from Ruben Santiago Hudson, Skeleton Crew from Dominique Mariso, and Chicken and Biscuits from Douglas Lyons, who is making his Broadway debut. In terms of the new age, no major industry announcements regarding streaming from Broadway theaters has surfaced. Attention has grown for captures as both Hamilton and American Utopia have been nominated for Prime Time Emmy Awards for their captured productions. In the technology realm, NFTs are coming to Broadway. A collaboration through Seaview and Marathon Digital partnering with Nifties will sell NFTs related to theater. There hasn't been a lot of public announcements about relocalizing Broadway. We'll have to wait and see if that is on the horizon. But we are definitely going more global. Milano Music Awards and Broadway International Group has announced that there will be an international festival of musical theater in Milan, Italy in summer 2022. It is called the Festival Internazionale del Musical. Speaking of across the pond, The West End has been shutting down numerous productions lately amid the new surge in the Delta variant. The Delta variant is present here in the United States as well as other variants, and the virus is still very much alive, evolving, and a threat. So please, continue to practice safety and stay up to date on the newest guidelines from the CDC. But if my research has shown anything, it's that the key to fighting this are masks and ventilation. The theater can absolutely be a place of safety and joy, and I look forward to greeting you there. Why We Theater is a product of the Broadway Podcast Network. It's edited and mixed by Derek Gunther. 
If you like the show, subscribe at bpn.fm slash WWT or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends. Our theme music is by Benjamin Velez. Why We Theater is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Wappinger and Lenape peoples. I acknowledge this land was unjustly taken from them and pay my respect to elders both past and present. Special thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Lee Silverman, Patrick Taylor, Tony Montaneri, Wesley Birdsall, Elena Mayer, and Suzanne Chipkin. For more resources for change, info about our guests, and more, visit us at whywetheater.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.